It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. Shannon, unfortunately, I'll be denying you the pleasure of my rambling, incoherent, flighty, discursive monologue this time. I'm That's sorry. only for the uh, discussion portion. <laughs> exactly. No, because we've got uh, a couple of really juicy chats, to steal uh, one of your words, I think, and a quick housekeeping item over on our sister long-form podcast, Alpha Chatterbox. I've got a long chat with Brad DeLong, the economist and economic historian from the University of California, Berkeley, about Hamiltonian economics in the context of U.S. history. Go check it out. Otherwise, Shannon, I think we should just get right into the show today. All right. On the show today, first up, economist and writer Allison Schrager is joining us to talk about savings, why Americans don't do more of it, and why it is that they haven't spent more of their oil price windfall, their gas windfall, their heating windfall. I guess in that case, they are saving some of it. Why aren't they saving more? Why have they not been saving more in the last few decades? And then after that, Kara Scannell, the FT's investigations correspondent, joins us to talk about U.S.-based tax havens, secrecy in South Dakota of all places. A lot of offshore money coming to the U.S., not to Switzerland, not to Panama, not to Luxembourg, but to South Dakota. Why, oh, why? Kara's going to take us through it. First up on the show, a guest that induces a certain amount of nostalgia, Allison Traeger, economist and writer at Quartz. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. For our listeners who don't know this, Allison was our first guest in the revamped version of Alpha Chat uh, in the middle of last year. Uh, you were talking about a piece that you wrote in Playboy. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Pre During the nude time, too. While, while there were still nude people in while Playboy. Well, there were still nudes. I'm very right. proud I was part of it then. Okay. You wrote a couple of pieces uh, in Quartz about a non-salacious topic, okay? It has to do with oil prices and spending and all that stuff. That's the topic that we're going to be discussing now. So let's start with oil, okay? A couple of years ago, oil starts plummeting. Americans see gas prices fall as well. Everybody throughout the developed world thinks that this is going to be like a huge boon to the economies of the uh, developed world. Mm -hmm. That's not exactly how it worked out. People did not, it seems, spend all the money they saved from oil. Why do you think that is? Because it was surprising. I think I heard Larry Summers say this is the biggest economic conundrum of our time because the most basic economic models all assume oil price shocks that are oil prices falling lead to more growth. And I, mean, I guess we've had growth since the oil prices fell, but it hasn't been much to write home about. So there's a lot of back and forth. A lot of people can't even agree if people are spending or saving. I think J.P. Morgan Chase Institute looked at a lot of people's credit card data and it decided that people were spending 80 percent. 
But I, I'm suspicious of that just because you'd think if that were true, that you would see a bigger uptick in aggregate demand, or at the very least, it would show up in aggregate data. Because if you, you don't see these huge jumps in consumption, and you actually are seeing a bit of a jump in saving. So even I, I believe that the JP Morgan Institute numbers might be right, but they might not be as representative as we would have hoped. Okay. But in terms of why, let's assume that they're not totally right, or even that they did spend 80%, but not more. Why haven't they spent more of the windfall? You, you noted at the beginning that they were surprised, but it's been a year and a half. Why not start spending now? Well, you know, I think we can, instead of, everyone's been looking at this from a very sort of broad macro perspective, but my background is more in life cycle finance, which takes a more of a micro and a macro view, which is people respond to income shocks in different ways. And a cut in oil prices, because everyone spends money on oil, is a lot like getting a pay raise or a pay cut. And people respond differently depending on the kind of pay cut or pay raise. If it's a transitory, what we call transitory income shock, it would be like you get a one-time bonus from your employer. or if it's a permanent income shock, it would be like you get a permanently higher raise. And depending on what that is, people respond differently. So if it's a transitory shock in rational economics world, which you know you could argue with, you assume that people want to have consistent consumption experiences. So they'll save that bonus and consume it in very small amounts over the course of the rest of their life. This is actually, uh, if you'll indulge a little bit of nerdiness, goes back to Franco Magdaliani, who won the Nobel Prize for this. And in a really sort of funny moment for economists, they asked how he's going to spend the prize money, which would have been a transitory income shock. And he said, I plan to save it, just sorry, to spend it in equal components from now until the rest of my life. Okay. <laughs> so I think you can think of oil prices in the same way. So how consumers respond to an oil price shock, you can sort of use the same framework to think about it. If they think, oh, this is a one-time thing, oil prices are low this summer, then you would expect them to spend it in sort of small increments over time. As opposed to if they're like, okay, this is a permanent windfall and we've entered this new regime of low oil prices, then you would expect them to spend more of it. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, Shannon, you're one of the few people I know in New York who has a car. Uh, have you noticed uh, the lower gas prices and have you done anything with the money you've saved? I guess I definitely noticed that it's cheaper, but it doesn't feel like it's been like a huge difference, right, to like our overall kind of when you're thinking about budgeting, not, you know, over the course of a year. Like there are a lot of other things that come into play. And I mean, one of the things I'm sort of curious about is, is it's not just about when we talk about oil price, it's not just about like fueling up your car, right? I mean, we're also thinking about like heating. heating or the impact on airline tickets and stuff. And certainly that doesn't seem to be getting any cheaper, right? It's not like suddenly cheaper to fly ever. Actually, it isn't arguably more expensive to fly. Or you see airlines like doing more of this like pricing in, you know, if you want to bring a bag on, if you want to have any anything on the airplane, you have to pay extra for it. In other ways that you might think you'd feel it, maybe you're not feeling as much savings. And in terms of individual behavior, we don't always keep careful track of these things. Right. So like there's not a precise formula that says if gas prices go down or if heating prices go down, then you'll end up spending X percent of that, right? It's hard to keep track. Yeah. And I mean, there is definitely, you know, I think Jim Hamilton makes a calculation of how much more people have in their pockets. And it, it, it's small. Um, I mean, especially with the uh, airlines, it's even harder to see because don't they hedge their oil right. prices far in advance? Right. So it might take a little while to show up. Right. Sure. Although just today, actually, it's being recorded on Tuesday, the U.S. Energy Information Administration estimates that this year Americans will spend $900 less on gas than they spent in 2014, which was the year 
that oil started plummeting. That's actually pretty significant for a U.S. median income that's, I forget exactly how much, in $40,000 or $50,000. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's a lot. There's another aspect to this that I find intriguing, uh, which is the idea of mental accounts, right? Because I think this is another study from J.P. Morgan that showed that some people who saved money on gas ended up spending the money they saved on nicer gas, right? (laughs) On higher quality gasoline, (laughs) right? right? Because they sort of had compartmentalized the amount of money they save on gas. And it's like, all right, well, if it goes down for a little, then I can spend it on nicer gas instead of something else. I don't know to what extent that would affect the aggregates, but it's interesting to me. We did see an uptick in saving rates. Not much, but more than we normally Mm -hmm. see. Uh, One last question on oil, because this is interesting to me because there has been some debate about whether or not the decline in oil has been a good thing at all. My own opinion is that it's been a great thing because you get one of two things. Either people spend that money in the economy and the economy gets a little bit of a boost or household balance sheets are a little bit stronger and maybe they don't spend it right away, but they'll have more money to spend later. Uh, Is that right, Allison? Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I'm a fan of saving, as we'll talk about later. So I would say Say definitely. And there's probably as well, though this is definitely not above my pay grade, probably some geopolitical consequences that are useful too. Sure. Okay. Let's go on to that next topic, savings and Americans and why they don't do more of it. (laughs) Uh, It hasn't always been the case that we didn't save a lot of money, right? The savings rate kind of decline gradually in the period before, in the decades before the financial crisis. It's a little bit higher now than it was right before the crisis. What do you think happened? Well, the main reason you save is to turn money now into money in the future. And that could be either for retirement or if something terrible happens, that you make sure you have money there. I mean, there's a lot of academic studies and no sort of real consensus on it. But I've always suspected that maybe during the Great Moderation, things seemed less risky than they had before. So people ended up saving less. And part of that saving less was also um, that they were borrowing more money to spend, right, specifically against their homes. Yeah, certainly. And then there was securitization and... You know, a lot of ways it became a lot easier to get credit, credit cards, all these things. How do we think about separating like cultural forces that might be uh, influencing savings rates versus just people following incentives and not necessarily in like the very straightforward, rigid, caricatured way that economists used to think about this, but just in in general, right? So maybe they borrow against their homes because they think that homes are going to keep rising in value because they have for most of their lifetimes. Well, that's a good question. I wonder if you really can separate them. Because on the one hand, if we have these cultural norms that, hey, you should consume as much as possible because that's what makes the economy grow, then you also have more policies coming out that encourage people to take home equity loans and spend them. Okay. In terms of uh, policies that can get people to save a little bit more money, what are our options? Well, it's a hard question because we have a lot of policies that induce retirement saving tax incentives for 401ks and IRAs and 403bs. But we don't really have anything. In fact, you could even argue we discourage saving for more liquid purposes, Mm -hmm. which is really, I think, where Americans are even, I mean, they're falling short in retirement savings for sure. But I think the Atlantic article that I referenced shows that, you know, half of Americans own a $400 if they could come up if they had to. So this sort of liquid emergency savings is what's really dire. And especially if you're a low-income person, then, you know, you're an event, like one bad event, like a car breaking down event away from just financial calamity. Yeah. What can we do about that? (laughs) Well, that's hard because how can you get people to save more and then only spend it in an emergency? Because with retirement saving, you have all these behavioral tricks like, you know, auto enrollment and then not giving people access to it unless they pay huge penalties, although even then they take it out. 
So you have to get people to voluntarily or even passively save more and then not touch this money. And we certainly don't do anything to encourage it. But I, you know, I can't even really think of policies that could help that because all these behavioral tricks that economists have come up with don't really help with liquid savings. So possibly a lot of people will just continue being screwed. <laughs> the other way is, as I said, if people have you know better financial education, more awareness, or if they sense greater risk. I guess uh, another possibility, by the way, and it's not, it might not be ideal, but it depends on which kinds of emergencies you want people to be prepared for. But it might also require some socialization of those things, right? So if you have universal health care, then at least in a medical emergency, it'll be taken care of, whatever the problems or benefits of universal health care otherwise, right? Yeah, for sure. Although I was just reading a study today that you could argue we have universal health care for people over 65, and even still, I was reading the average person, average couple has to spend $250,000 on healthcare expenses post-retirement. Oh, really? Yeah. I think what we really need is more socialization around valuing saving because I think people get a lot of mixed messages. Okay. I mean, if you see the news, it's always like they always celebrate upticks in consumption. But even with this oil thing, well, everyone's fretting. Like, why aren't people spending more of it? Instead of why aren't we excited that, gee, people are saving more. And we should be excited that they're saving the windfall and cleaning up their balance sheets. To, to be honest, I'm I'm still not sure how to think about that uh, in, in broader terms, right? Because I think traditionally we would say, well, more savings is a good thing because that savings gets channeled into investments. The economy can grow. You get some return on your money, which you then have later, and you can access it for either for an emergency or for retirement or whatever you want. The problem these days seems to be that not all of the money that's saved is getting channeled into investments. People seem to prefer safer assets, mm -hmm. and that's just driving down interest rates and lowering the returns on saving. And so I, I don't know how to think about it because you want some savings for sure, and you want, at least at the household level, the individual level, you want people to be prepared for this. You want them to be prudent mm -hmm. and to save money. But at the same time, more savings, at least in the near term, also harms the economy right? Or slows the economy if it's not getting channeled into more investment? Yeah. Although I guess that sort of more speaks to a breakdown in financial markets than extreme risk aversion. Yeah. Or, or structural issues too, right? Like what? Like for, for instance, let's say, let's say, assume for a minute that financial markets are working well enough that if investment opportunities existed, mm -hmm. they would get the savings to those investment opportunities. The question would then be, why don't more investment opportunities exist? Maybe that's for demographic reasons. Maybe it's because there are supply side problems, too much regulation, whatever you want to call it. But the point is that it's not getting channeled to investments, right? So it's not just a breakdown in financial markets. It could be other things. And yeah. in fact, I don't think anybody's really sure exactly why this is happening. It's really heavily debated. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm not sure that people are putting too much in risk-free assets. It seems that governments are. But I couldn't say one way or the other about whether or not the average household. It seems like the average household is pretty much nothing that's liquid. And then they have their 401k, which are largely inequities. Right. So it could be deliberate policy decisions that are also driving a lot of this as well. Yeah. I mean, if anything, people are probably overexposed to housing still. Oh, fair enough. Shannon, you're about to start a family. Okay. Uh, which means me. that, yes, I know it's very <laughs> exciting, but it also means that uh, you're about to be spending a lot of money as yeah. well. Aren't you worried about like the ability to both have a family and save enough money uh, for <laughs> retirement and like longer term things? Because this is a fairly common worry for a lot of young Americans. Yeah. I mean, it's probably our biggest worry. I mean, so you know, a couple of years ago, basically when my husband and I like moved in together before we got married, we did some consolidation of our finances at that point. And 
actually sort of both of us for the first point in our lives, you know, in our 30s, we're like, all right, maybe we should figure out how much we should be saving and how much we should have for an emergency. And we worked really, we worked really hard over the past couple of years to build up, you know, would something that does not yet feel adequate, but if it was something, if, if there is some sort of catastrophic, like one of us loses a job, you know, we have some amount of of cushioning, I'm pretty sure most of that is going to evaporate in the next year <laughs> um, just because we're having a baby and things get expensive. You know, we, we kind of do what we can. But I mean, I think one of the things that was really hard for me, you know, I graduated from college in 2002. I had some savings. Uh, you know, I, I also had a lot of student loan debt. And, you know, I, I worked for a couple of years. I lived with roommates. You know, I sort of did the typical New York, very poor person, you know, poor college educated thing and saved some money and then, you know, proceeded to spend it all when I went to grad school and kind of came out to at grad school, you know, six years later at the same point I had been right. when I came out of college. Um, and it's really only been, you know, in the past couple of years that I've been able to kind of have the sort of income stream, thanks now to having two income streams where we can think about that. Last question, because the subtext of that Atlantic article that Allison just mentioned about how Americans would have trouble coming up with $400 for an emergency uh, if they had to, which we discussed last week. The subtext of that article was that a lot of this uh, is down to income inequality, right? And that some people are um, essentially chasing their neighbors, they're chasing their friends and peers and whatnot, and they're buying stuff that technically they probably shouldn't be spending money on, right? Allison, what's your view on the impact or on the, the influence of uh, inequality uh, on the kind of inadequacy of U.S. savings? I don't really blame inequality. I mean, this guy was earned a decent income. I mean, I think- The guy at the Atlantic, you mean? Yeah. Right. I think there's a problem of people wanting to consume too much. I don't blame that on inequality that they want to be more like their neighbors. Just nice stuff is nice. So it's in absolute <laughs> terms that you think they're chasing this stuff. It's not because they're chasing relative status gains. Yeah. And there's a new paper out in the AER that looks at inequality and consumption and how it's really mirrored inequality and income. And it's a really interesting story in that um, you see even like the lowest income households having goods that people didn't even have in the 80s. Like there was a non-trivial number of poor people didn't have a refrigerator in the 80s. Now they all do. But on the other hand, the real shift in inequality and consumption has happened around food. I'm guessing some of that also is in housing as well and shelter because of all the zoning regulations and everything have really driven up the cost of uh, rent. So at least in New York and in other, I think, urban environments, your choice is essentially a nicer place but a really long commute, mm -hmm. which makes you unhappy, or a crappy place and a shorter commute. Uh, I think that's a trade-off that a lot of people have experienced and one that maybe we don't talk enough about. Yeah, though I don't really blame inequality. I think the closest thing I've ever done to undercover reporting is uh, when I was at The Economist, I went to a women's shelter to teach financial literacy. And, you know, pretty much learned I don't know anything about being poor is a very complex being poor requires a lot of very complex financial decisions. I know very little about even with all my training. And, you know, there's certain things I, I, I learned a lot from it. One is even when you are poor, there's always a little bit of room to save. And second, you know, really that they do make very sophisticated choices and that they're not just like blindly buying sneakers because they look nice or because a rich person has one. It's sort of, it's their own calculation. And really, what's really terrible about being poor, especially not having a financial cushion, is you have no room for error. Talking to them about how they got to a homeless shelter, you know, it's always some equal parts, bad luck and bad choices. I can't say I've honestly made better choices. I've just had a lot of a much larger room for error than they have. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And I love this point about needing to focus more on consumption inequality, which I don't think people pay enough attention to. Although, at least in my case, I wouldn't yet rule out the potential influence of income inequality there either, even if consumption inequality is lower, because it's possible that if you have income inequality but lower consumption inequality, that the reason you have more equality in consumption is because people are borrowing money. So they're still able to spend more than they otherwise would if they didn't have access to credit. But the fact that they are borrowing to spend it means that they don't have as much financial security as the people who they're spending as much as but have higher incomes, right? So anyways, this is all being discussed at a very abstract level, but I think it, all this stuff is fascinating. Alison Schrager, uh, economist, writer at Quartz, thanks so much for coming in and discussing these pieces. Thanks for having me. Uh, and before you go, though, why don't you give our listeners one long-form recommendation? Well, my colleague at Quartz just wrote a really cool piece on the art of skywriting. And skywriting. Skywriting. And they even have videos. They even have a VR video, which you can look on the phone and pretend you're on a skywriting plane. What, what is a skywriting plane? Well, it's planes that push out a little bit of smoke. So it makes a word. And apparently there's one family that is a complete monopoly on skywriting. Really? Yeah. And where is that family based? California. I didn't know that. Like a monopoly on skywriting anywhere or just well, in California? A, there's, a te- there's a technology involved with doing it quickly. Because normally, I guess the other way that what people used to do, it would be hard to because the smoke would dissipate by the time you finish the word. So you so, don't know what it is. <laughs> exactly. So they came, they patented some technology about a generation ago where they can get all the smoke out and actually spell a word fairly fast. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. I highly recommend it. <laughs> Joining us now in the studio is Kara Scannell. Kara, it kind of seems like you're on here every time something dodgy is happening. That's the idea. Not coincidentally. Not at all. Panama Papers, here we are. Okay. You've got this great new story about U.S.-based tax havens, specifically in South Dakota. Uh, Your story is about the kind of extraordinary growth in these trust companies and in the rise in their assets that they oversee. Let's start with this. What exactly do South Dakota-based trust companies do, uh, and what are their benefits for their clients? So anytime someone wants to set up a trust, no matter where you are, you can do it to put land or property, artwork, or just regular money. And the reason why a lot of people flock to South Dakota is that their laws there are constructed in a way that make it very beneficial. There's no personal income tax, no corporate income tax, strong secrecy laws. So a a snooping reporter can't go find a lot of information about this in the court system. And also very good asset protection laws that enable people to separate money from the rest of their money by setting it up there, which can keep it away from other lawsuits or from future ex-spouses. And it's a lot of foreign clients as well that that keep their money in South Dakota. It's not just other Americans. Yeah. I mean, it really started as an American thing, like the big wealthy names that we know, the Wrigley's, the Pritzker's, they all have trust there. But over the past few years, they've seen an influx of money coming from Asia, Latin America, and Europe because of different um, tax sharing agreements elsewhere. The U.S. is a place of certainty. And you know, with South Dakota, those benefits, uh, it's really brought a lot of money there. Okay. When you talk about like the secrecy laws and all that stuff, I usually associate that with like Switzerland, right? Why the U.S.? What are the advantages that the U.S. has specifically over other uh, foreign countries where traditionally you'd think, you know, a rich person who wants to maintain secrecy would go? 
Uh, a lot of the Swiss bank secrecy laws have been eroded over the past few years between both Department of Justice settlements with banks, uh, different agreements that have been reached across multiple governments. And there's this one um, kind of continuous automatic sharing that a lot of countries have signed on to, including Panama today, that the U.S. has not signed on to. So that allows the U.S. to be separate from it. Whether they continue that stance, we'll have to wait and see. But you know, for now, there are certain advantages because the U.S. is not a party to that agreement. Do you guys don't think it's weird that the U.S. hasn't signed on to all these other laws, even though at least here in the U.S. we make a big stink of the fact that in these other countries, the kinds of secrecy that we're discussing here can be like a cover for illicit activity, money laundering, or whatever. And in the U.S., we haven't signed on to the same standards that we want other countries to enforce. If you talk to bankers in Switzerland, they'll make that exact same point. I think there's a lot of questions about why the U.S. is being on both sides of this. You know, that said, the U.S. is probably still the most aggressive in actually cracking down on tax evaders. Okay. And you had this great quote, of course, in the piece where the guy says, it's not dodging taxes, it's just planning. Right. I mean, if you talk to anyone in South Dakota, they say they thoroughly vet their clients. They won't take money from people who they don't know, either from an advisor like a lawyer who refers clients or that they haven't vet themselves. The banking division, I talked to the director there. He said the same thing. It's our reputations on the line. We won't accept money if the person seems like they're not really familiar with managing money or that they don't really have a business plan that the state would be able to vet. And so you said there's a, there's reasons that we've seen in this boom in South Dakota. Are there is there any indication that like other states are sort of trying to do the same thing or that other states have lost out actually as South Dakota has gained? It's actually really funny. I mean, I spoke with a lawyer in Nevada who was just bragging about some financial problems that Alaska's having where they might have to impose a tax for the first time in years. And he was just bubbling over with excitement because the competition among the states is fierce. I mean, this is a state-level issue. It's not something the federal government deals with. And you see the likes of um, South Dakota, Nevada, Delaware, and Alaska being at the forefront within the trust industry. And what's interesting about South Dakota, since 1997, they've had a governor's trust task force whose sole job is to review the trust laws of other states to make sure South Dakota stays competitive. So something that's kind of interesting to me is that although these states have these like sort of inbuilt excuses that Shannon just mentioned, so it's tax planning, it's not tax evasion, it's tax deferral or tax minimization, not tax, well, I guess still tax evasion, right? It seems so dodgy, like it has the kind of air of something weird going on. What's the appeal for somebody who doesn't have anything to hide to put their money in a trust like this if they're fine with what they're doing and if they're, you know, above board on paying taxes? I mean, the the reasons that that I've been given is you put it in a trust if, for instance, you're a very wealthy family and you're concerned that someone will try to extort you. You know, you have your money separately. People can't obviously see how much it is or where it is. You know, you also do it for family planning when you've got some of these fortunes that families have built up and they're trying to manage it over generations. And with every generation, it becomes more fractious, the number of people and what they might want to do with it. So they set up a trust that way. I mean, you could set up a trust anywhere you want. And New York has lost a number of, of they've lost a lot of business to South Dakota and other states because of the favorability. An interesting question, what does South Dakota get out of it? 
And, you know, you don't see it in the in the revenues to the state. So that's a piece of debate. I mean, South Dakota says they get jobs from it. But given the kind of astonishing growth in the actual assets under the trust there, I think in your piece, you said that total tax revenues from these guys were something like $2 million a year, even though they have hundreds of billions of dollars in assets there. Doesn't sound right. Right. They make about $1.7 million last year in tax that the trust companies pay. They have $226 billion in assets managed by trust within the state. So that's not a, a, a very big percentage no, of that No, it doesn't sound pie. like a big yield <laughs> at all. Who's Pierce McDowell III? Pierce McDowell III is probably, he's the most important person in the building of the trust business in South Dakota. He started out as a lawyer, ended up um, writing an article in Trust and Estates magazine uh, long ago, which he touted the benefits of South Dakota, all these tax advantages. This top guy at Citibank saw it, they brought him on board, and then a few years later, they spun out and created the South Dakota Trust Company, which is where 40 of the trust companies in the state out of 86 share an address. In your piece, there's something about a paper that he once wrote where he explicitly talked about, and the word avoid was used here, avoiding estate taxes, right? And that's how he was spotted by City and offered a job in the first place. Right. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's been kind of the evangelist for the tax industry there. And he's a very, you know, friendly, nice guy. His grandfather, P1, as they refer to him, was also in the trust business. You know, and he's really grown it into this huge behemoth with this office in a former old discount store in downtown Sioux Falls. So you went to Sioux Falls. I mean, is there any indication, like if you were walking around, you didn't know that this industry existed, would there be any indication that of exactly how much wealth is sort of, you know, funneling through? No, Shane not at all. Sioux Falls is a nice place to visit. <laughs> well, apparently there are a lot of benefits of living there. Right. But, uh, it's cheap. <laughs> it, it's really remarkable. I mean, there's a small little stretch of downtown. Their building hugs a corner, but the curtains are drawn. You can't really tell what's happening within there. There are three other buildings that are also kind of where many of these trust companies are based. You know, one is like a little glass and brick building. It doesn't really leave much to desire. Another one's a converted old um, train station where there's also restaurants. So there's nothing that screams wealth when, right. when you're there. And then, you know, it was funny when I got there, I was pretty excited to be in the Great Plains. So I asked um, a you know, person at the hotel which way to go see the Plains. And they said, just drive 20 minutes in any direction. You'll be there. <laughs> you're basically right in the middle of them. Uh, let's talk about the future now. Panama paper leaks comes out, so obviously there's going to be sort of renewed attention to all of this these offshore wealth structures, right? You mentioned earlier the incentive for a lot of this offshore money to come to the U.S. because of the crackdown in laws elsewhere. But you also quote somebody who said that having your money in the U.S. right now is like sitting in the dragon's mouth. What do you think happens next or what could happen next? You know, I mean, it's hard to predict what will happen that is beyond anything that the regulators could do themselves because of the presidential election and Congress kind of gridlock. So I can't imagine there'll be any dramatic changes. I mean, that said, the Department of Justice has been cracking down, you know, across the board on tax evaders. So I would expect that to continue. It hasn't slowed down in any way. And in fact, they're still going after a number of banks and clients and all the intermediaries who help that. So I think we we can expect that to continue, um, but I, I don't know that we'll see any 
major changes or major shifts in the U.S. strategy. The White House recently announced this crackdown on uh, disclosure, right, or toughen the disclosure requirements. Doesn't affect these guys much, though. I mean, what that did was say that you have to reveal to the bank who the real beneficial owner is, which can come in handy if there's ever an investigation and for the bank's own due diligence of who's actually behind these accounts. There's been a lot of criticism of it, though, that there are enough loopholes in there that it might not make that much of a difference. Okay. Kara Scannell, we're not going to label you the FT's chief dodgy correspondent because that'll just sound wrong. Investigations correspondent, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Before you go, what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners? Well, I just finished reading the New Yorker's piece on Melania Trump, which I thought was really fascinating because it just gives you so much good insight into someone who we, I don't think we collectively know that much about. Okay, Shannon, time for our long-form recommendations. All right, I'm going to recommend a podcast this week. Not a specific episode, but I've been enjoying The Axe Files, which is a podcast by David Axelrod, who worked in the Obama White House um, and also on the presidential campaigns and is now uh, back in Chicago doing this great long-form podcast where he talks to other political types. Um, he was in the news this week because he had just had Jon Stewart on. That episode is out today. I actually haven't listened to it, but everyone's really excited because we're getting to hear Jon Stewart's thoughts about Donald Trump at long last. But I just listened to an episode from a couple of weeks ago with Mike Murphy, uh, who was uh, ran John McCain's Straight Talk Express presidential campaign um, and also ran Jeb Bush's presidential campaign. And they're just like, just a great like long discussion about political history, their history, because he and Axelrod have faced off a lot over the years. It's um, a nonpartisan show. It's definitely. I mean, he has people from all sides. And these are people he knows really well because he's been in politics like his whole life. And you know, they've met on many battlegrounds. If you're at all a politics nerd, I highly recommend. I am recommending the Embedded podcast from NPR. It is reported and hosted by Kelly McEvers, who used to be a war correspondent for NPR in the Middle East. Um, and it's fascinating because I think it is one of the few attempts at doing a news reporting podcast, right? You haven't seen a lot of uh, that kind of a marriage between the genre of podcasting, which often lends itself to the kind of podcast that we do here, conversational style mm -hmm. podcasts. And uh, hard news reporting. Right. Um, and the specific episode I would start with is called The Capital, where essentially McEvers uh, spends a day in San Salvador, the capital of El Salvador, uh, which has essentially been taken over by gangs. And on that given day, I forget how many bus drivers were killed. They went driving around. It was heartbreaking. It was emotional. Uh, it was dangerous at times. Uh, and it's just a really fantastic narrative. So definitely check that out. Excellent. That is all for today. Shannon, do you want to start closing us out? Sure. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can give us a call at 917-551-5012 and leave a voicemail. Or you can send an email to alphachat at ft.com. We'll put show notes up, including links to our recommendations and the various items we discussed today uh, at ft.com slash alphachat. We're on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Pry, S-H-A-N-N-O-N. P-A-R-E-I-L and Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. And finally, please go on iTunes, leave us a rating and review, lets us know what you like about the show and it helps other people who might be interested find the show. Shannon, it doesn't matter what producer and editor Amy Keene's savings rate will be because one day she'll make so much money as to render it totally irrelevant. And I myself am not worried 
that she's going to have to hide her money in South Dakota, okay? Because everybody will already know how awesome she is. It won't even matter. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you again here next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. <laughs>